All right, as promised at the top of this program, we're going to devote some time here to various issues related to um, pharmacology. There's a lot you could say in this subject at present. Well, there always is. And our go-to guy in this area is Howard McKinney. He's a doctor of pharmacy. He was a board-certified clinical toxicologist here in California. When I met him many years ago, he was a staff pharmacist at UCD's Medical Center. Uh, we've had him on many times in the past, and... Um, and probably will do so again in the future. And I got a lot of questions for him. So without further ado, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Howard McKinney. Thank you, Doug Everett. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Howard, I think I'm going to start with something you and I have talked about uh, off mic, um, which is the fact that the Russians seem to be doing quite a bit of poisoning. And as a toxicologist, I wanted to ask you about that. Well, it's a long story. <laughs> the short version of which is, yes, they do appear to be doing that. Um, their history of political poisoning, shall we call them, uh, goes all the way back to the 1970s, with uh, possibly their first publicly known victim being Georgi Markov, who was stabbed in the thigh with an umbrella that had a pellet of ricin in the tip of the umbrella. And that's kind of that's kind of a classic in espionage circles. Totally. He actually passed away on September 11, 1978. How's that for coincidence? Markov? Yes, 1978, the year I graduated from pharmacy school. Would they talk about it in pharmacy school? I did. <laughs> they didn't. You couldn't interest others in this topic because it sounds like that would be, uh, you know, pretty much candy for, for toxicologists. Uh, well, that was the year that I was involved in starting the San Francisco Poison Center. So it was a, the very beginnings of my toxicology career. But I'd always been interested in toxicology, just in general, fascinated me. So when this hit the news, it was, of course, of interest. So there's a guy right now saying he's been poisoned twice, and that got him arrested. That is correct. And Vladimir Karamurza, I probably butchered the pronunciation, but uh, he's the one who came out with the statement a few days ago, apparently, that he is absolutely convinced now that Putin's days are numbered, that there is enough resistance among the citizens of Russia who have come to realize what's really going on in Ukraine is an unwarranted war that Putin himself has uh, instigated against the Ukraine. And he was referring to that and saying that he thinks, and he's a political activist in Russia, um, he thinks that uh, Putin's days are numbered. Well, we can hope. He says, Russia will be free. I've never been so sure. That's the direct quote from jail. Well, he's been pretty blatant about a lot of this. I was watching a documentary made a few years ago by Alex Gibney. It was called Citizen K. And at some point in it, they showed how how in your face Putin was about about some of this to the degree that these these chumps that were sent over to the to Salisbury to poison a Russian dissident which they succeeded at doing. They didn't, they didn't kill him, but they, they, they tried. Another woman died inadvertently when she 
recovered the perfume bottle they had the poison in, sprayed it on herself. But they were showing that because it, they had video of these these guys, the Russians then brought them out, put them on put them on TV, and said, and they were like, "Well, what were you doing over there? Oh, we were we were tourists." Exactly. And, of course, the two of them look exactly like the kind of people who would be visiting famous religious sites around the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, for a, for a matter of, of an hour or so and then flying back to Russia. Exactly. The other thing that's interesting about a lot of these, not so much Markov, that was actually the Bulgarian government is traditionally alleged to be the perpetrators, but they were working under the sphere of the Soviet Union, then, obviously. But what's interesting about the, a lot of the poisonings that they've staged with the Skripals that you just mentioned, with Alexander Litvinenko, with a whole slew of others, is it's almost like they're leaving a calling card with these unusual toxins. Exactly. I mean, when you poison a guy like Litvinenko using polonium, and it's you can you can trace his stuff because it's so highly radioactive. That's that's what kills you. You're leaving it very obvious. Plus, it's so unusual. I mean, you could probably count on two hands the number of people that have access to polonium in the world, and polonium two ten even fewer people. So. It's like you're leaving calling cards. I need to halt right there for a future discussion with you, Howard, because I remember reading an article some years ago that it was alleged that traces of polonium that would appear in, in, in the soil are picked up by tobacco leaves and that, they, that the polonium, independent of all other factors, could explain the toxicity of tobacco. That I want to talk to you about at some future date. I'm not sure I buy that, but we'll investigate it. All right. Putin's been poisoning people. We presumably trace all this back to enemies of Putin because that seems to be an, an oddly unifying factor in all the people that turned up poisoned. But yes, one can hope that he's gone too far in Ukraine and we'll soon see the end of uh, Vladimir. We can hope. The next topic I want to address was there was an Atlantic article about methamphetamine and how the author of the article believed that the, the 2P2 form of methamphetamine coming out of Mexico may have impurities, which explains a lot of the psychoses we see among large segments of our population at the moment, particularly among the homeless, who appear to all be on meth. Your, your opinion on all this? Uh, and in full disclosure, we discussed this previously. It's a fascinating topic. And my response, when this was described in some detail between the two of us, was, hang on a second, you don't need to go looking for bizarre contaminants in methamphetamine to try to explain that the users of methamphetamine develop psychotic episodes, because that's what methamphetamine does. So the notion that this is some contaminants of synthesis or some cutting agent to increase your profits when you sell the powder on the street, et cetera, et cetera, is it's possible, but you wouldn't see such a large number of people with, excuse me, just classic presentations of methamphetamine chronic use associated with psychosis. It's very well known 
We're all familiar with seeing patients come into the emergency department being restrained by law enforcement, thank goodness, and we have to treat them because they're just totally psychotic. And sure enough, turns out they've been using what we used to call speed. It's got a lot of other names over the decades, but it's all basically impediments. We should mention, too, that you've got a long track record with this, having dealt with the, uh, the, the, the situation of uh, drug addiction back in the Haight-Ashbury days. That is correct. Yes, sir. I went to pharmacy school in San Francisco and found out very quickly in 1973, when I started school there, that if you worked for Haight-Ashbury Clinic, and specifically Rock Medicine, we ran clinics at all of Bill Graham's concerts. So, hey, I get to work in a clinic with people I like and attend an awful lot of very good rock and roll concerts. <laughs> so I said, I think I'll have to do this. And you are correct. That was an amazing experience to be there as the psychedelics had sort of started to move out of the city up into Marin County in 1973, and heroin and speed impediments were moving into San Francisco. And that, in the 70s, was the majority of the toxicities that we saw. We should, at some future point, talk about Ken Kesey and the whole uh, asset experience that, that came out of that. But I did want to ask you a little bit about today, or briefly, about 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 LSD and, and the fact that it has had quite an evolution. You, uh, I think it was, was it Bicycle Day recently? <laughs> that is correct. Bicycle Day is so named because Albert Hoffman, who was an eminent, wonderfully skilled chemist in Basel, Switzerland, he worked for Sandoz Chemical Company at the time, Sandoz Drug Company, but he was basically trying to make a drug called methogen, which is on the market today, and it's used in obstetrics and gynecology primarily to try and counter uterine bleeding. It constricts blood vessels in the uterus. What he was investigating in order to eventually make methogen was a series of compounds that come from the products of a mole that infects rye, the grain rye, and the specific compounds are lysergic acid derivatives. And so he was making lots, hundreds of derivatives of lysergic acid and its related compounds. And the 25th isomer, LSD-25, lysergic acid diethylamide, just happened to be in his lab. He was recrystallizing all his uh, synthetic products to make sure that their purity was was maintained. Didn't grease the stopcock sufficiently enough, and when he heated the reaction vessel, it spurted a bit of uh, the compound out in the air as he was standing there at the lab bench operating it, and boom he got the world's first dose of LSD. And as it came on, as its effects became manifest, 
He got in his, notified his physician to meet him at home, got on his bicycle, and rode his bicycle to his house, tripping the whole way, <laughs> and went back the next day, a couple of days later, and repeated the, the experiment to make sure that that was what caused his mental changes that day, and therefore confirmed, wow, there's something to this LSD-25 stuff. It's different than the other synthetic products. But because he rode his bicycle home, that first day is memorialized as Bicycle Day. And, and somehow this compound then gets in the hands of the CIA and thinks they can, they can use it to, uh, to, to dose entire populations and then march your army in to take over as everybody's tripping. Correct. I've actually read the term in a number of articles where all these products are referred to by the military as confusogens because <laughs> they confuse you. And the whole idea is to somehow spray the attacking army with confusogens so they will become so confused that they can't fight, and you can go in and take them down. And the MK Ultra program and other programs in the United States military that actually go all the way back to World War II era um, looked at a lot of different compounds to try and use chemistry and poisons to inactivate opposing armies. And that was one of the drugs they looked at was LSD. I'm going to ask you to validate the story, that, that the classic example, the law of unintended consequences, that a guy working at the VA over at Stanford is asked to uh, test this new drug the Army's working on or the is working on to see what you think. And it's uh, Ken Kesey working at the VA. He tries LSD, and the rest is history. Is, is this how it went down? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much. That'll, that'll do for a big, tent umbrella overview of how it happened, which, of course, then led to the uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which he wrote, and the acid test and the famous bus that he drove all up and down the West Coast actually was on the bus. You were on that bus? Yes. Delightful afternoon spent with them in Fort Pine State Park in North San Diego County. Boy, we got a lot of future shows to talk <laughs> about things with. That's one I, I definitely want to hit on. Uh, I guess they filmed a lot. At least when Tom Wolfe wrote The Electric Coolies, he describes them driving through Arizona, flags flying. During the 64 campaign with the sign, a vote for, a vote for Barry is a vote for fun. And you, you just have to admire uh, how out in front he was on a lot of stuff. Wasn't it a different world back then? Well, in the world we're living in now, we've got AI that's being applied to, to things. And there's a recent story that I know you haven't had a chance to fully assess. But the story is they put AI at work on looking at different compounds and, and making, them, making sure they were not 
not toxic. And then they said, well, let's tweak the program to see what happens if we make it more toxic. And what do you know? They came up with all these deadly compounds that caused them to sort of not reveal the whole story in the article, which is sort of unusual. Which, of course, leads to also the huge topic of all the efforts to make sure that as AI robots and robotics are invented, created, and let loose in the world, the source of a lot of science fiction stories, of course, but the programmers of that are supposed to be programming the robots to never attack humans. Asimov's law, right? And the robot can never attack, uh, can not injure a human. Who knows if that's going to work? Yeah, I think the Pentagon's got some other opinions on this. Not knowing a whole lot about it, but just in general, I'm not a bit surprised. I mean, if you put AI, artificial intelligence, software programming, to work on a batch of compounds, depending on how you ask it what you ask it to do, that program may go to all kinds of strange endpoints, and there's really no control over it. I'll bet you a buck that if the basic scenario is true, and this AI program somehow was put to work on some chemical structures, and instead of coming up with useful safe products, it somehow made a turn in the path and started creating poisons that would be deadly for human beings, I'll bet you that list has been rapidly procured, and there is feverish research on all those compounds now. Oh, brother. Because if I recall the punchline, a lot of them were, after you saw what they were, were like a real duh moment. It's like, why didn't we see that? I guess a lot of it was quite innovative, yeah. And apparently it's it's very common molecules, very common chemistry. It's not real exotic. doesn't require a lot of expensive, weird, exotic, synthetic methods that nobody has access to. As I recall the description, uh, that was one of the terrifying things about these products is it's real common stuff that didn't require that much work to turn a fairly common compound into a deadly poison. Better living through chemistry. Yes, indeed. Apparently in Congress, the House just passed a bill that was going to, to, to decriminalize marijuana. It went down party lines. But, but wait a minute. Stop right there. Okay. I heard a major news story in the very first part of your sentence. Our current Congress actually passed a bill? No, I'm sorry. I misspoke. The House passed it. It now goes to the Senate. <laughs> that, that is an incredible idea, that anything was being coming out of Congress. What a concept. <laughs> 220 to 204 along party lines. Three Republicans, only three, managed to see the merit in decriminalizing marijuana. One of them is Tom McClintock. I'll give him credit because he did appear on this show many years ago. But otherwise, you just have to go, what, you know, what is wrong with these people? Exactly. And I, I would differentiate two terms. Decriminalizing the use of any psychoactive substance is 
very, very different than quote unquote legalizing. Sure. Most people would appreciate some kind of social controls over the dissemination of these compounds to ensure safety, quality of the product. We have tobacco products out there that cause terrible cancers and other pathologies and diseases, but the distribution of the tobacco product is increasingly being directed in hopefully safer directions. We've had ethanol and prohibition and the repeal of prohibition, and that whole history is rich with lessons of how both to and not to attempt to control the social use of drugs to keep them safe. So, but decriminalization, I think most observers of the scene would agree that there is very, very bad outcomes associated with the war on drugs and with the mass incarceration of users without giving them any sort of addiction medicine treatments while they're incarcerated is a dead end. It's never going to work. So decriminalization would be a very good thing, but what must accompany it is an increase in funding. That's kind of what it comes down to, is an increase in support and funding of addiction medicine interventions for these patients, not prisoners, who suffer from a chronic disease called addiction. Well said. That's straight out of Haight-Ashbury Clinic, the the whole philosophy. All right, we're touching on a lot of different things today, Howard. This is a lot of fun, as it always is. I want to do one final one uh, about my pet peeve we talked about many times on this program, the fact that there is a current... Well, you, you meant the drug war. You mentioned the drug war. It does not seem to be working too damn well. And doctors, in every, almost every article I read to this day, it keeps blaming this drug, this opioid crisis on prescription medicines, which has, to my mind, a very small role to play in the grand scheme of things. It's a lot of this is fentanyl, fentanyl-like compounds. They're coming from China. They're going through illegal drug channels. That's what's killing people. Your opinion, sir. The group of compounds to which you just referred, which are not prescription drugs, let's emphasize that, um, are what most of us in toxicology call fentalogs. Okay. F-E-N-T as in fentanyl, A-L-O-G-S as in analogs. These are analogs of the drug fentanyl. Let's make a point here. Fentanyl is a widely used drug that is a prescription item okay. that's used every day in every hospital in the land. It's a very potent, rapid-onset, short-acting derivative, if you go all the way back, of the opium poppy, the opium to... Um, heroin to codeine to all the different products of the opium poppy have been utilized for pain relief. 
So fentanyl is a very useful drug when it's used correctly. Sure. However, there's, it, there's two problems here. One is, this is not always fentanyl that we're dealing with. It's analogs of fentanyl. Yes, the Chinese apparently have legitimized the manufacture of huge quantities of these items for sale on the illicit marketplace. There is evidence to suggest that a lot of the synthesis, especially in the last year and a half or so, is actually in Mexico. And we're not, we're not alleging that the governments of these countries are actually involved in it, but as we know, the drug cartels in Mexico have a tragic and huge amount of power in Mexico. And that appears to be in conjunction with the logs from China, um, the source of a lot of this fentanyl. The problem is that you never know what you're getting on the street. And the, the first instance of this, if I could ramble through a quick tangent here, but when the Shah of Iran was deposed and the Islamic government replaced it, a lot of people who left Iran and came to the United States were addicted to opiates. But in Iran, they smoked their opiates. They smoked their heroin. They did not inject it primarily. So a lot of them moved to San Francisco, and all of a sudden we started seeing this explosion of quote-unquote heroin death from injection. And the problem was that the so-called heroin powder that was sold on the streets in the 70s in San Francisco was, you know, zero to maybe as much as 3% actual heroin. Wow. And as several people referred to it, what we were in the business of treating, actually, was primarily lactose addicts, not heroin addicts. <laughs> but when the Persians moved to San Francisco and brought their opiate powder with them, it was 100%. Uh. So as they shared that with the good citizens of San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury, um, it killed a lot of people. And that's what you're seeing today, is nobody who purchases, and yes, the cartels have pill presses that can produce amazingly correct-looking Vicodin tablets, Percocet tablets, all sorts of legitimate prescription drugs, and the products that these pill presses produce look just like the prescription drug. Mm -hmm. But it's a gamish of compounds that's mixed with these pentalog drugs to get people at least some psychoactive effect, which hopefully, in the eyes of the cartels, will encourage them to buy more and use more of the drugs so they can make more profit. But the problem is, these are very potent compounds. 
Well, I would think that Fentalog, Chinese Fentalog 39, might be five times more potent than Chinese Fentalog 38, and, and you're running the same problem, no? Exactly. Because you're a buyer on the street. You don't know what you're getting. You have no idea. And it, it almost causes some of us to be a little wistful of the old days with people who did have access to very high-quality heroin who could actually know how much to inject. Wow. All right. That, that we're going to talk about also in the future. But doggone it, we have run ourselves out of time. Howard McKinney, pleasure as always. Let's bring you back on again in a couple months or maybe less to talk about so many issues that are related to, to drugs in our society. Doug Everett, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for chatting with me. And to be continued. Very good, sir. That about does it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.